If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You always give back what you take out. The single line of black type was the only blemish on the thick cream-colored card I was handed as I entered the mansion's front foyer. The man handing them out, impeccably dressed in a cream-colored suit, the same color as the card, was solemn in his work, but that didn't stop Jonas from giving a laugh as he patted the man on the shoulder and took his card. The man shook from the impact of Jonas's meaty hand, but his expression remained unchanged. Seeming disappointed, Jonas turned to me and rolled his eyes before pulling me into one of the parlors off the main hall where people were talking. I'd met Jonas six weeks earlier when he contacted me after buying one of my paintings from a gallery downtown. He said he was an art collector and had been very impressed with my work. Did I have more that he could see and perhaps buy? Yes, of course I did. Would I meet him for lunch one day and bring my portfolio? Yes, of course I would. In the week since that first lunch, we became friends and Jonas became a patron of sorts. He bought five more of my paintings, but he also started talking about me needing an actual studio rather than just painting out of a spare room in my apartment. I was always leery things were going to veer towards strangeness or turn sexual, but it never did. He never really asked anything of me at all until this party, and it never even occurred to me to refuse. He didn't tell me much going in, other than it was a social club of ultra-wealthy people that was kind of weird. No orgies or anything like that, he assured, and it was up to me how much I participated in any activity. But his precautionary preamble was enough to make me intrigued without really being worried. Once inside and mingling, I began looking for signs of strangeness, but found few. The oddest thing was that it looked like no one was drinking other than water. When I asked Jonas about it, he said alcohol was discouraged at these things, as it could dilute or corrupt the experience. What was the experience? Jonas just gave me a melodramatic lift of the eyebrows and a wink. We talked to a few people, all clearly wealthy, a couple I even recognized from some article or television show. Then an announcement was made to come to the main ballroom. People filtered from our and several other rooms, coming together into a large room lit by two massive crystal chandeliers and bare of adornment except for a large platform towards the far end of the rectangular room. It is near this platform that the 40 or 50 of us gathered, being beckoned up by a small woman who stood atop a podium. She welcomed us all, saying that per custom, seven people had been pre-designated for tonight's journey, and everyone else had been put into random pool for the remaining three slots. She asked for those three to come up first, each holding a black stone that apparently indicated their right to participate. When she asked for the remaining seven, Jonas chuckled and grabbed my arm, guiding us to the front. I was starting to get nervous now, and I wanted to ask questions, but there was little time, and I didn't want to make Jonas angry or embarrass him in front of his weird friends. So I kept quiet, 
as we ushered through the heavy double doors behind the podium. We were in a smaller room that was empty except for two lamps, and the three men were clearly some kind of guards. The woman gestured to the men, and they proceeded to open the only other door in the room. The door was of metal, and was locked by both an electronic lock tied to a keypad and three bar locks that even the large guards had to grunt to slide out of the place. When the doors began to crack open, I could feel cool air rush out to greet us, scentless, but carrying a strange weight about it. The woman let us in, and that's when I first saw the body. It had been a middle-aged woman, and was dressed in a gauzy white dress. She had brown hair streaked with gray that cascaded down to the stone dais she was laid out upon. Her skin was pale and clean, and at a glance she could have just been asleep. But at more than a glance, that clearly wasn't right. She was too still, too inanimate. I couldn't help myself at this point. I leaned over to Jonas and asked if that woman was dead. He nodded, continuing to talk as the woman gestured for one of their group to come forward. Jonas told me in lowered tones that the body was over 500 years old but had never decayed. It happened sometimes, he said. Such bodies were called incorruptible, and it was sometimes viewed as a sign of sainthood. This woman, he said, had been a miller's wife in Eastern Europe and had apparently just dropped dead one day. They didn't embalm the body, of course, but it still did not rot. Eventually, it was claimed by a local church, and a small monastery had been built around it for a time before it changed hands and ultimately wound up here. But why? I asked. He pointed to the front, where the woman had spread open a slit in the dress to expose the flesh of the body's stomach. This process, Jonas said, was called wet cupping. It was commonly used as a form of alternative medicine on the living, but it had been discovered that it was used to extract fluids from an incorruptible body. The fluids could be drank to various effects. I felt myself involuntarily jerk back. I could tell by his expression, which was much different than his normal relaxed and jolly face, that he was serious. What effects? I asked. Visions, euphoria, intellectual and artistic breakthroughs. It was kind of like acid, but without any risk of brain damage or long-term physical harm. And while some people did have bad trips, it was pretty rare. While he was talking, I was watching the procedure unfolding before us. The woman had several tiny glass cups on the table nearby, and with practiced precision, she took a small metal tool that almost looked like a toothbrush to ten different spots on the skin. As she did so, a black liquid would begin to well from the spot, and she would apply a cup which had some mechanism on it to vacuum seal it to the flesh. By the time she was done, all ten of the small cups were filling with the black liquid. She then went to wipe the first one, slid a piece of thin metal underneath its edge with amazing speed, and rightened the cup. Wiping down its sides with a cloth, she handed the brimming cup of black ichor to the first participant, an older Hispanic woman. The woman's wrinkled nose told me the smell a moment before I smelled it myself. The scent was of dead flowers and decay, and I felt my gorge rising. I wanted to tell her not to drink, but it was too late. After her, the rest followed in turn, including Jonas himself. 
They all seemed okay, and Jonas said that while it smelled terrible, it didn't taste bad and it was perfectly safe. The woman handed me my glass, and they all waited, staring at me expectantly. I'd like to say that I told them no, that I handed it back or threw it to the ground and told them I wanted to leave, but I didn't. I was scared and weak. I didn't want to lose Jonas's friendship or his patronage, and I could feel that I was on the precipice of something. So I held my breath and drank it. Jonas was right. It didn't taste bad. I felt it slide down my throat like some kind of foul milkshake, and then it was gone. I braced myself for some kind of reaction, but none came. When I looked questioningly at Jonas, he was grinning. Clapping me on the back, he told me I'd done great, and it would probably be a bit before it kicked in. We all retired to a room filled with sofas and chairs, and while the other guests, the non-participants, were around, they kept a respectful distance. I felt my hand getting lighter as I sat on an overstuffed leather sofa in a dim corner in the room. My vision began to dilate, and then the room fell away entirely. I was flying through some dark maelstrom, and I sensed it was the land of the dead, or at least one of them. I felt my body pick up speed as it hurled downward through the black clouds and purple arcs of lightning, and before long I could see the ground below me. As my descent slowed, I found myself shooting across the landscape, gray, ashy lands of bare earth giving way to dark forest, then to massive cities carved of towering red monoliths of crimson rock and dark sinew. I began to scream and cry from joy and terror, and then I was back in the room. I looked at my phone, and only a few minutes had passed. Jonas dropped me off at home in the early hours of the morning. He told me he was proud of me, that he wanted to see how it would affect an artist of my caliber, and not to tell him, but to show him what I experienced through my work. Over the next few months, I began doing just that. I was painting at an incredible pace, filling canvases with depictions of the things I'd seen and the images I continued to see in my dreams. Jonas bought many of them, but he was not alone. He bought me a new studio that had room for a full gallery, and by the end of the first year, I was selling paintings as fast as I could finish them. In many ways, that time and the months that followed have been the best of my life. I wish I could say I'd enjoyed them more, but most of the time is spent feeding my drive to paint as though I'm trying to express the corruption out of a wound. Still, I'd become very successful doing the thing I'm most passionate about, so I wasn't about to complain. Yesterday morning, three men broke into my studio and kidnapped me. They zip-tied my hands and pulled a black bag over my head before gently leading me outside into a car. Two hours later, I was back in the room with the body. They had secured me to a metal table that had not been in the room before, thick leather straps over my thighs, torso, and after removing the hood, my forehead. I could only turn my head slightly, but it was enough to see the body and see the men that had left the room, shutting and locking the door behind them. I called out several times but got no response. My pleading turned to angry rants, but soon I was tired, my fear overwhelming any sense of indignation. 
I didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen, but the uncertainty made it much worse. I found myself glancing periodically over at the body from the corner of my eye, but nothing changed. More time passed, and I thrashed against the straps, but they didn't budge. After holding out as long as I could and harboring some insane hope that this would prompt a response, I wet myself. Still, nothing. Finally, as I felt my urine cooling against me and my heart starting to slow, I accepted I wasn't getting out of this. I began to cry. Softly at first, and then thick streams of tears ran down the sides of my face and into my hair. That's when the lights went out. It startled me, but it didn't stop me from weeping. Whatever new torture they were going to subject me to, I might as well cry while I could. Eventually, I quietened. Silent rivulets still coming from my eyes and pooling in my ears. That's when I heard something. It was a small stealthy sound, a rustle of fabric, then the light scuffing a flesh across the marble floor. It had not fallen asleep, and I knew no one had entered the room unless it was by some silent secret entrance as the main doors made too much noise. And the sounds... They were coming from the direction of the body. I remained perfectly still, half frozen from fear now. I listened as I heard the small noises of movement come closer, felt the unmistakable sense of another's presence close to me in the dark. My head immobile, I could tell there was a face floating above me. I heard or felt no breath, but I thought I knew why. I wanted to scream, was opening my mouth to, and that's when I felt the rough, dry tongue on my cheek. The fleshy appendage raked itself carefully, almost thoughtfully across my cheeks before following the trails of my tears down into my hair and even to the cups of my ears. I held myself perfectly still as though I was being tasted by some venomous snake and was trying to avoid the subsequent bite. The tongue did its work meticulously, occasionally revisiting my cheeks and the corners of my eyes, and then it was gone. A moment later, I felt a light kiss upon my forehead. I heard another slight rustle of movements, and moments later the lights turned back on. The body was back on the dais as though it had never moved. Soon the double doors were opened, and I was escorted back outside to a car where Jonas was waiting inside. He told the driver to take us back to my house, and while I was shaken, I didn't even want to talk. Jonas wasn't deterred. He apologized for how I had been taken, saying that it was always that way the first time, to minimize any resistance. Now that I knew what was what, the next time they could just send a car for me. The next time, I asked. Yes, he said with a sour look. It would take a few times to get back what I had gotten, but by then, I'd be ready for another round, he assured, and it would get easier. I asked what the fuck he was talking about. He frowned, looking genuinely perplexed. You always give back what you take out. It's part of the deal. And you'll want to do it again, believe me. It's life-changing. He gave a laugh. Just don't scare me like that again. When you took so long without crying... Was getting worried. I've seen other people not cry, and I've seen what happened to them. She has a way of taking it back, and believe me, it's not nearly as pleasant. 
His face looked haunted by the end, and he looked as if he wanted to say more, but in the end, he just turned and looked out the window. I was returned home, ten hours after I had been taken, and since then, I've been thinking about what I should do. But I'm writing this not as a cry for help, but as a word of warning. Be careful what thresholds you cross, and know yourself before you do. Because things have a way of getting paid for, and sometimes... You may not like the price. The business card left in my mailbox was unassuming. A simple white font affixed to a black background. But its claim was bold. There is now an in-dream hotline you can call to escape nightmares. Simply find a red rotary phone in your dreamscape, dislocate it from the receiver, and choose a number to be connected. A good night's sleep is just around the corner. Enjoy your rest. It had all the makings of a half-hearted prank from my friend Josh. After all, he was the only person I had told about my recent night terrors, but stooping that low just for a cheap laugh, he knew my nightmares were deeply personal. All involved my deceased father. Would he really go that far? Though Josh was a funny guy, he could be sentimental when the time called for it. I wondered if this was less of a prank and more of an offering of relief during a tough time. His way of telling me that there would eventually be a way out, a light at the end of the tunnel. I took comfort in this, opting not to reach out in case he decided to go back on it and laugh in my face. However caring the man could be, he detested heart-to-heart moments. Thanks, Josh. I guess I needed this. With a slight smile, I placed the card into my pocket and went about my day, grateful for the gesture. Unfortunately, it would not be enough to keep my demons at bay. Later that night, while resting, I was blindsided by memories of my father. Completely out of my control, a horrific scene came into focus, replaying the events of his death. I had no choice but to endure the torment and watch the events unfold in my mind just as they had so many times before. I was a child, and we were swimming at our favorite spot on the outskirts of town. We often played a game to see who could hold their breath under the water longest. On my father's last dip beneath the waves, he never came up for air. His body was never found. Being young and naive, I was convinced a creature dragged him to the depths of the ocean. As an adult, I now know this monster was a riptide, pulling him in out into uncharted waters. Undercurrents in that area were fierce, eventually leading local authorities to close off the beach altogether. The search party never stood a chance of finding him. I valiantly thrashed about as the horrible images recurred, but soon found solace in the form of sleep. Like the many nights that came before it, the solace would be short-lived. My dreams began as it usually did. I watched from the shadows as my dad tucked in my younger self and read aloud a bedtime story. This moment was always so peaceful, a calm before the storm. I briefly basked in the ambient nostalgia before remembering the events that would inevitably come next. That's when the panic set in. 
After the story concluded, my father transformed into something horrific. Below his waist was now a grouping of slimy tentacles, wetting the floors he slid across it. Below his waist was now a grouping of slimy tentacles, wetting the floors he slid across it. Above his collar were the grotesque features of a monster's head, an amphibious amalgamation of loose appendages, sharp teeth, and gills protruding from his neck. His mouth opened at an unnatural angle, wide enough to devour my younger self whole. He then turned his attention to me. This was my cue to run. Racing through the house to escape the creature's clutches, I felt something fall from my shirt pocket. It was the in-dream hotline business card. I picked it up and looked it over. Despite the fragile nature of the visual stimuli in dreams, the card was identical to its real counterpart. No matter how many times I read the text, none of the characters were fuzzy, jumbled, or rearranged. A thunderous growl crept up behind me. I sprinted to the living room. That's where I saw it. Right where my family's landline usually sat. A red rotary phone. In this moment, a compulsion washed over me. Despite the service being a complete fabrication, I was compelled to give it a try, if for no other reason than to see what would happen if I did. Perhaps my sleeping mind would fill in the blanks and wake me from the nightmare. I picked up the phone from the receiver and held it to my ear. There was a harrowing silence. Going over the card again, I realized it was time to pick a number. It seemed there were only five viable choices. Numbers 6 through 0 had been scuffed away along with the pound and star keys. When placing my fingers in the holes, the wheel wouldn't budge. Instead, I decided to choose number 1. The wheel turned and my ear was met with a male voice. Thank you for calling the Endream Hotline for escaping nightmares. How can we be of service? It worked. My brain was playing along. Uh, hello? Yes, I... I need to escape this nightmare, please. Quickly? Certainly. I'll be happy to assist you with this. Please hold while I look up your situation. The sound of grinding teeth echoed in the distance as the creature slid from room to room searching for me. Oh boy, childhood trauma mixed with a phobia of sea monsters. That does not sound like fun. Luckily, this is an issue we are equipped to deal with. You have three options. Transport, reconfigure, and vanquish. Which would you like? The monster had now honed in on my position, slithering toward me as my eyes widened in terror. Uh, vanquish, get rid of this thing. Okay, one moment. I watched in horror as the creature closed the gap between us in a matter of seconds. Looks like your account is new. You don't have the options to reconfigure or vanquish yet. All we can do is transport. Shall I initiate that option for you? The eldritch virgin of my father swung its tentacles over me, narrowly missing my head as I cowered in fear. Fine, transport. Do it now. One transport coming right up. All at once, the sound of the grinding teeth stopped. The moisture on the floor evaporated, and the creature was frozen in place, a statue of pure dread. And then it vanished before my eyes. Transport successful. Thank you for calling the in-dream hotline. Enjoy your rest. It worked. I couldn't believe it. It's 
difficult to explain, but I felt alleviated. A wave of relief so strong it allowed me to breathe again. Catharsis filled the air as I walked through the dream version of my childhood home, free of the guilt I'd harbored for so many years. My nightmare was finally over. I slept through the night and woke, fully refreshed, knowing that somehow I'd come to terms with my father's death, albeit strange means. Sunlight poured into the room as a bird outside sang a beautiful melody, the smell of home-cooked food wafting through my apartment, but I live alone. Upon venturing out to the kitchen to identify the source of the aroma, I was taken aback by what I saw. It was my dad, cooking a seafood feast fit for a family of twelve. Hey there, sport. How's your nap? My mouth hit the floor. Dad? But how? He smiled. What's wrong, sport? You look like you've seen a ghost. Dumbstruck and frightened, I ran to my bedroom and locked the door. I wasn't my father. It couldn't be. He was swept out to sea. No one could have survived out there. It just wasn't possible. My phone buzzed, interrupting my panic. It was a private number. I hesitantly answered. Hello, this is the in-dream hotline for escaping nightmares. We don't normally take calls outside of the dream void, but we noticed your recent transport has gone awry. We're here to help. What? Josh, is, is that you? What's going on? Is this some sort of sick joke? Transports can be unpredictable. We apologize for the inconvenience. If you upgrade to one of our premium packages, we can aid in the removal of your nightmare. We accept all major credit cards. Did my ears deceive me? Was the in-dream hotline real? The silver package is our cheapest upgrade, allowing you to reconfigure your nightmare, but there is no guarantee the result will be any better. We suggest purchasing our gold package, an option which lets you vanquish the nightmare once and for all. A stream of seawater entered the room as a familiar tentacle snuck beneath the doorframe. Lunch is ready, sport. I hope you're hungry. I know I am. I handed over my credit card information without so much as a second thought. I'll take the gold package, please. Brilliant. Please hold. The sound of tapping at a keyboard filled my ears as my father began banging at the door. Your transaction is in transit. It'll take five to seven business days to process, at which time your nightmare will be vanquished. Five to seven days? Were they serious? I have to wait how long? What am I supposed to do in the meantime? Thank you for calling the Endream Hotline for Escaping Nightmares. We sincerely hope you live long enough to continue doing business with us. The operator paused before offering a final sentiment. This time, the friendly facade was over. Their voice was now stern and serious with what felt like a tinge of malevolence. Good luck. I don't sleep. I hate those little slices of death. Walter Reich
As I stood frozen in place, thoughts dwelling in my mind about the inevitable choice I had to make, I knew that choice had to be made soon. With my right hand gently grasping my chin and thought, I knew my next decision was going to impact the next few minutes of my life in a way I could not explain to someone who wouldn't understand. I looked up slowly, and my choice was made. You know what? Let's go ahead and throw both on there, I said with a grin. Both mayo and mustard, sir? The sandwich shop employee inquired. Yeah, my doctor says I need to bring my cholesterol down, but that sandwich is looking pretty sexy, I replied with a wink at the cute girl making my sandwich. She shook her head with a smile and resumed her work on my order. I collected my meal and found the most remote corner I could to resume my studies. A recent spike in mental illness cases brought me back to my small hometown I was raised in. At the age of 20, I received an offer for an internship that was far too good to pass up. I quickly accepted and made my way to New York City where I became the leading practitioner in the field of onreology over the preceding two decades. An onreologist is, to give a basic explanation, a dream doctor. I work in a branch of neuropsychology that specifically studies REM sleep and its correlation between dreams and the functions of the brain. My theories on casual dreams, nightmares, and even sleep paralysis have been studied worldwide, and as a result, the head of the local college requested me specifically. Normally, I would not take a case like this and send one of my interns to research it, but it was a chance to reconnect with my old town and what family I had left there. You may be asking yourself, why would a dream doctor be sent to investigate a surge of mental illness? Without going into too many long medical terms or scientific details, a recent discovery by a local doctor discovered strange activity in the hippocampus, signifying the patient's dreams may have something to do with their psychosis. His findings were what ultimately prompted me to make my journey back home, as dreams and nightmares have a significant effect on the human psyche. Mind if I join you? A voice said from above. I lifted my head out of the stack of files I was studying case by case for the last several hours. Please, do, I replied, noticing it was the college chancellor. I could use a distraction. I've been staring at these papers for so long, I feel like my eyes are going to melt out of their sockets. Well, we can't have that. In truth, all we really need is your brain, though, the chancellor said jokingly. I smiled, and then, as if instinctual, I began skimming the case I was currently trying to wrap my head around, forgetting about my need for that little distraction. Any luck? He asked with a more stern tone. I shook my head and let out an irritated exhale. None. I can't find a single commonality in any of these cases aside from the symptoms themselves. We may actually have a brand new, undocumented form of psychosis on our hands. I replied, rubbing my forehead in frustration. Well, I think I might have something for you and someone you might want to talk to, the Chancellor offered with the same sternness in his voice. Yeah, I said, but this time with an equally irritating inhale. It's a bit of an unlikely source, but a young upstarting freshman may have found one commonality you might be interested in, he said. And what would that be? I said as I began organizing the mess of papers into their folders. I'll let him explain it to you, 
Not exactly my area of expertise, and I'm pretty sure I'd explain it wrong, he explained in a more giggly voice. I nodded and finished packing up my research along with the half-eaten sandwich I'd all but forgotten about thanks to my studies. As we approached the school campus, an unusual scene caught our eyes. The chancellor hurriedly parked the car and ran to a group of college students who'd gathered in a large group. I trailed behind them slightly as we began to see and hear what was going on. Get them away! Get them away! The eyes! They won't stop staring! I can't! No! A frightened student yelled as she frantically flailed on the ground. Young lady! Young lady! What's wrong? Chancellor yelled, grabbing both her arms to stop her violent outburst. It was then I noticed campus police running over to assist. The Chancellor had managed to stop the students from flailing as she fell silent, tears rolling down her face. And the eyes. They're everywhere. I can't. No, she said in a whimper as she clutched to the Chancellor's arms, burying her face into his shoulder. He looked up at me with a look of shock. The most common symptom of what was happening in this town was hallucinations. It seemed we had another case. Campus police and EMTs were able to bring her to the adequate medical facility to help her or at least attempt to. After the frightening scene was well in hand, we made our way to our destination. Now that I had a chance to walk among people instead of wrapped up in my studies... I noticed something concerning. The majority of students, teachers, school personnel, they all seemed unwell. Many of them were equipped with baggy eyelids as they seemed to lazily lurch forward to their next class. Several of the students looked pale as if they hadn't seen the sun in months, all with frumpy postures as if they either just woke up or never slept at all. If there wasn't a mental health concern going around, I would have just blamed it on late-night studies for exams. I took a mental note of what I was seeing as we approached the computer lab. Twin computer screens looked back at me in the reflection of his thick glasses. The young man was intently gazed forward into his research. If he moved any closer to the screen, he probably would have knocked his monitor onto the floor. Son, this is the uh, scientist I told you about. The Chancellor said, attempting to get the young man's attention. Yeah? He replied, with his eyes darting back and forth at the webpage in front of him. I looked at the Chancellor, annoyed at the apathy this kid was showing. He shot back a grin as if he was expecting that response and amused by the look I was giving him. Would you care to explain to him what you told me? He said, not removing the grin. An awkward silence filled the room for several seconds, followed by a quick, nasally retort. This is not indicative of all reported cases, but I didn't find common grounds in a cluster of reported illnesses, he blurted in one hurried breath. Some, not all, have reported vicious nightmares. That doesn't seem to be a commonality, if only some have nightmares. It sounds pretty normal, to be honest. I replied, about ready to give up on this kid. He didn't respond. He continued typing and hastily clicking the mouse. Son, tell him the important part, 
Chancellor demanded. The young man halted the movement of his mouse and slowly met his eyes with mine. They're all having the same nightmare to the letter, he said, almost as if he was telling a spooky campfire story. I looked toward the Chancellor in confusion. His eyebrows lifted as he nodded his head. I opened my mouth to question the kid further. I was interrupted by a loud scream emanating from the school hallway. The two of us ran towards the sound with the young man gazing over the top of the monitor, still not moving from his seat. As we exited the classroom, more screams were heard with students gazing all in the same direction. We did the same. A young lady was running down the hallway towards us. Her screams echoed through the corridor as she ran. We moved to intercept, but we were met with another sight. The silhouette of a male student appeared at the end of the sun-glistened hallway. He was running towards the poor girl in a sprint, holding what appeared to be a stick or pole over his head as he charged. A clunk was heard as the female student tripped and landed hard on the ground, immediately turning around and frantically sliding back in terror. A group of students and teachers, including ourselves, moved forward to stop the male student. I'm going to kill you, damn it! Damn it, you're dead! You're dead! He screamed in rage as we desperately tried to subdue him. Campus police were quick to the scene and yelled for the group to clear away as they wrestled the student down. A loud snapping noise was heard, followed by sounds of electricity. They had tased the enraged young man. The taser had zero effect. When the police backed away to make room for the taser, the student began jabbing the weapon at every angle. His face was blood red with rage as he grit his teeth. His hands gripped the weapon, which seemed to be a broken broom handle he sharpened to a point. With the sounds of electricity still echoing in the air, the enraged man was tackled from behind by an officer. They finally subdued him as two teachers escorted the frightened young girl from the scene. What the hell is going on here? The Chancellor yelped as he ran his hand through his hair. I slowly looked around at the crowd that had gathered. Sluggish, tired-looking faces lazily watched as the police hauled off the would-be attacker. As they left, the group dispersed in silence as they continued their day, almost unaffected by what just happened. I know the term zombie is thrown around a lot to describe someone who is overworked and exhausted, but that term could not be more accurate here. I had to get to the bottom of this. This was no normal psychosis. My thoughts were filled with speculations as I drove to my next destination. The ten-minute drive seemed like ten hours, as thoughts of the horrifying cases I was studying occupied my entire thought process. Every case had reported hallucinations. What was causing them, and why is everyone affected, all within a small window of time? As I approached my destination, my thoughts were quickly interrupted. A tight grasp was felt around my neck. I gasped for air as I attempted to keep control of the vehicle. The grip sent an intense pain through the muscles in my neck as I tried to fight off the attacker. In a fright, I glared toward the rearview mirror and who was choking me. It was... the Chancellor. A devious grin glared back at me as I lost control of the wheel. 
The car broke into a spin and I was now using both hands to attempt to pull his increasingly strong grip from my throat. But he wouldn't budge. The strength displayed was impossible. As I retched in pain and slowly accepted my defeat, the car came to a halt with the sound of screeching tires coming to an end. An empty quietness filled the air as I opened my clenched eyes. As I rubbed away the tears, I jumped forward and turned back to the seat. No one. The empty back seat was all I could stare at as I rubbed my neck. No longer in pain. Oh my god, I uttered under my breath at what I just realized. I'm not immune to what's happening here. Did I just have my own hallucination, my own psychosis? I turned to peer out of my windshield. I was facing the wrong direction into oncoming traffic. Luckily, an empty road was in front of me. I slowly pressed the gas pedal to complete my trip. As I parked, I gazed into my mirror once again to an empty back seat. As I started, I caught a glimpse of two baggy eyes paired with a pale complexion. I stared in disbelief as I realized I was succumbing to the same illness as the rest of the town. As I walked through the hospital hallways, I was met with more unusual sights and sound. Screaming was heard in one room with hospital staff restraining a patient. One particular receptionist was angrily typing on her keyboard between yanks of her hair. I passed by a team of doctors who were consoling a patient who was sitting in the hallway, crying. I passed by another room, and as I peered into the small window, I could see a man in a hospital robe walking into the wall. What I mean is, he would slam front first into the wall, back up, and repeat over and over again. Now that I'm seeing where these cases are being treated, I realize the severity of what is happening to these people and possibly myself. It's so good to see you, sir, the lead doctor said while hastily shaking my hand. Thanks. Uh, this is far more dire than I realized, doctor. What do you have for me? I stated, wanting to skip the usual formalities. Next to nothing, I'm afraid. His glazed eyes looked at me in exhaustion. I'm nearly working with a skeleton crew due to sick staff, and more and more cases keep filling my plate. As he spoke, he pointed toward a glass window that showed us another room. A patient was sleeping soundly in her hospital bed. Health monitors and sensors were attached to her forehead and temples. It's as if everyone in town is suffering from sleep deprivation, but all reported cases have shown patients are receiving an adequate amount of sleep, the doctor continued his report. I've noticed the same thing around town, and in myself. I said, not wanting to admit the latter portion. The doctor turned his gaze toward me. I do have to admit, I haven't been feeling like myself lately. This isn't something that's spurred by any one event. It's not passed from one person to person. It's not something that's just in the air. This is a legitimate phenomenon. Do you have a live read of her brain functions? I asked, attempting to break the tone. With a spin of his chair, the doctor stood and tapped two separate monitors. The left monitor had a familiar side with statistics on brain activity. 
The right-hand monitor showed a visual representation of the patient's brain, separate colors differentiating each activity produced. After a quick glimpse of the monitor and brain activity, I snapped my head to the direction of the patient who was soundly sleeping. An equally quick snap back to the monitor was followed. How long has she been asleep, Doc? I said in a worried tone. Roughly three hours now, he answered. Don't worry, no sedation. It's 100% natural. This isn't right, I interrupted. The amount of brain activity shown here is way too low for someone this deep into sleep. I, I'm afraid I'm not too well versed on brain activity during sleep, sir. Shouldn't the brain shut down while sleeping? He said with an innocent yet naive tone. Quite the opposite. I replied, not taking my gaze away from the screen. Brain activity is the most active when we sleep. This chart should be lit up. What's your hypothesis? The doctor asked, confused. With my hand on my chin, I paced the room for several seconds. I had to piece this puzzle together. I stopped in my tracks and looked up. Doctor, it's not sleep deprivation that's affecting the town. It's dream deprivation, I said confidently. Sir? The doctor said, confused but intent on my words. People are showing signs for lack of sleep, but the inherent issue of that is lack of dreaming. Reaching rim sleep to dream, I said once again, pacing the room. I continued. Fatigue, irritability, hallucinations, these are all signs of sleep deprivation, but what's causing it? The doctor neglected to answer, instead turning his head to look at the sleeping patient with a worried scowl. Wait, there were nightmares reported too. How can that be if we're all suffering from... I stopped my words at realizing what the real important question was. Doctor, I barked as he snapped his head toward me with a sudden surprise. It was reported the patients who were having nightmares all had the same dream. Is that correct? Without a word, he nodded and motioned for me to follow him. More and more odd sights and sound were present as we made our way to the office. A poor old man yelling at staff members to get down and cover fire. PTSD? I asked the doctor. He shook his head. Not until last week. We arrived at his office and he immediately moved to open his filing cabinet. He handed me a file with several pieces of crumpled sheets of paper, all drawings on them. These are illustrations each patient drew representing their nightmares, he said in the most confident tone I'd heard from him yet. I studied the artwork presented in front of me. They were all different, yet similar. Crudely drawn images in walls and corridors. The scenes in each picture seemed oddly familiar. Each drawing was so sloppily done, it was difficult to make anything out, but that same theme was consistent in each. One drawing stood out. This one was much neater and understandable. It was almost artistic in its work. More dark corridors and decrepit walls filled the page. With one addition, a set of tracks and an old broken train. I recognized the logo on the top of the train. 
This was the old subway system that was abandoned during its construction when I was a child. I remember it so vividly because news broke about an accident at the station. Five workers were killed, and lawsuits put construction on hold, and inevitably, the project was stopped. Had they reopened the subway during my absence? A quick internet search proved that this was not the case. How could all of these disturbed people have such a strong recollection of a place so old, and from the looks of the drawings, forgotten? The stranger part being, why the few people who were dreaming were having only nightmares? Doctor, I yelled, continuing to stare at the drawing. Is there anything you could tell me about these patients, how they might be different from the others who aren't dreaming? The doctor put his head down to think. A pondering look filled his face as he looked back up to me. Yes, sir. It wasn't a concern until you mentioned the dream deprivation. Every one of these patients suffer from post-dormital paralysis. Sleep paralysis, I said with an aura of enlightenment behind my words. He nodded his head slowly. What could that mean? I didn't answer immediately as I slowly reached for the door. I paused briefly to gaze back at the doctor over my shoulder. Keep doing what you can. I'm going to go look into something, I said as I opened the door. The day was ending fast, and I wasn't sure how much longer these poor people could last. More and more dull eyes were seen while I walked as doctors, nurses, and patients alike showed a depressing lump of what used to be a human. More than once, I saw one bump into a doorway, entering a room, slamming headfirst into a bare wall, and more terrified, frightened people lined the hallways in their rooms. The screams and slams coming from the echoed hallway were becoming unbearable. I stopped, almost falling forward, at a new sight of terror. A pair of high heels were kicking from underneath a pile of officers. They were attempting to restrain her as I pressed my back against the wall, attempting to slide around the mess in front of me. I gasped at what I saw next. Without a thought, I cupped my mouth with both hands at the sight of a dead patient in hospital robes, lying dead on the cold floor, a pin jutting out of his neck. His throat was mangled. Clearly wasn't one stab. It was a vicious attack. More shock arrived as I saw the assailant the police were trying to control. It was the irritable receptionist I saw when I arrived. She wasn't screaming or yelling. She was growling as if possessed by some sort of wild animal. I made my way around the scene and left awkwardly slamming my shoulder into the doorframe. I stood in my hotel room, peering out of my window, not knowing what to do for my town. My request for a great view when I checked in turned out to be nothing I ended up wanting. Many people were seen wandering the streets, some talking to themselves, some yanking their hair, some hurled down in fright. Despite the almost apocalyptic mess that was displayed in front of me, I felt a sense of safety being in my own room at the top floor. I gazed down toward the immaculate drawing I had managed to borrow from the inept doctor. The longer I looked, the more I recognized my childhood. This was too accurate. I don't know why these people were dreaming of this place and why I had such a vivid recollection of that childhood memory, but I had to find out.
creaking sound was heard from behind me. I snapped around, quickly feeling the presence of someone in my room. I walked through my hotel room, checking every corner for what I just heard. Every time I checked one spot, more creaking was heard in another. I knew someone was there. I could feel it. I resigned my efforts to locate the source of the sound. I set the patient's drawing on my nightstand and began to undo my tie. More creaking, this time in all four corners of the room. It was becoming louder. What was happening? Suddenly, all four walls began moving toward me. I panicked, screaming as loud as I could as I watched four bare walls slowly creak toward me. One wall wasn't as bare, however. The window I had felt so safe from may be my only way out. I slammed my body against the window in a panic, began feeling for the lock, but there was none. My panicked cries were quickly stopped as I looked outside. Dozens, dozens of the townspeople were staring at me. The pale gazes sent a fright through me that I had no clue could be felt. What do you want? I screamed as the window pane echoed my cry back to me. Go away, damn it! Go away! I cowered to the ground and covered my ears as the creaking walls became unbearably loud. Quietness. I slowly pulled my hands from my ears and scanned the room. Everything was normal. Pictures on the wall. Furniture in place. And no collapsing walls. My attention darted out of the window. The town was no longer staring at me. They were back to their disturbing behavior, which is funny to say, was a relief. I looked down at my end table. The drawing looked back at me in an almost beckoning way. I quickly grabbed the picture and ran out the door. I knew what I had to do. Frozen in fear is more real to me now more than ever, as I stood staring at it. The entrance to the old abandoned subway system boarded up with several notes warning about making entry. I wasn't planning on heeding those warnings. I began pulling on the large slab of wood covering the entrance, only managing to pull a piece off at a time. This was going to take a while, but I could feel myself slipping into madness as I swore I heard voices and footsteps behind me. Glimpsing back, there was, of course, nothing. I stopped my demolition project as I noticed something at the far end of the building. A glimmer of a solid metal surface was emanating with the reflection of moonlight. I approached it slowly, down a very short flight of stairs, was a door. It was a maintenance door. I didn't know what to expect as I reached for the doorknob, but I opened it. It wasn't locked. As I walked through the dark passageways and into the darkness, into the depths of this place, I felt a sense of dread, as if I was unwelcome here. I lit up the hallways with the light on my cell phone and peered into room after room I passed. Most were empty, some cluttered with junk. Damn, I exclaimed as I approached it. An old beat-up tram was slightly tilted off the track as I entered the large subway station. 
The entire place was colored in a rusty tan color with dirt and cobwebs strewn all over. Am I the first to visit this place since the incident? I walked the room for several minutes, gazing at the wonders in front of me. The darkness of the room was interrupted by a flicker of red. I saw it from the corner of my eye, and as I quickly turned to look, flickers of red lined the walls inside of what appeared to be a sewer grate. I turned off my phone's light and moved toward the sewer entrance. I couldn't see a thing as I moved my head at different angles, peering down into the small passageway. I came all this way. Should I go further? My adrenaline was at an all-time high and possibly the only reason for doing what I did. I grasped either side of the grate and pulled. It was remarkably easy to move. It was almost impossible to move as I squeezed myself further and further into the small sewer entrance. After what seemed like an eternity, I finally made it to an open area. Another grate met me as if I was in a cage. This cage, though, led to a larger area. Flickers of fire lit up the walls as I came to realize someone was down here. Possibly a homeless person? I pulled myself slightly further to look into the room. There he sat, crouched down by the fire. The light from the flames only gave me a silhouette of a man in what appeared to be a long coat or possibly robes. He stayed crouched at the fire. Quiet. Eerily quiet. After a couple of minutes, he began to speak, very low, nearly inaudible. I tried to listen closely, but was disappointed that he wasn't speaking English. I had no clue what language it was, but his words became louder and louder as he continued. His inflictions almost became a chant. I backed up in fright as he quickly extended his right arm out. He was holding a curved knife. He stopped chanting. Did he hear me? Slowly, his left arm extended outward. A small tree branch was all I could make out in the silhouette. He slowly placed the branch on the fire. I was almost mesmerized by what seemed to be a ritual. The man began standing up as he lifted both hands in the air. I winced in disgust as he sliced the palm of his own hand. He proceeded to let the blood drip onto the fire. Slowly, with head down, he walked away. I waited several minutes until I could no longer hear the crunching of his footsteps. I grasped my hand on the bars in front of me. They wiggled loose just as easily. I dropped to the floor much louder than I expected as I ducked instinctively. He was gone. I placed the grate on the ground and began examining my surroundings. The fire was still lit as I could see the branch covered in berries, burning in the flames. Further into the room, I saw something, a statue. It was small, about the size of a small dog. This was not man's best friend. The statue seemed to have a cat-like body and claws, tusks and a snout similar to an elephant, fur covering its body and seemingly engulfed in golden flames. Coins and jewelry were underneath the statue in a small bowl. 
There was writing engraved on the place underneath it. It was an Asian language. Now I wish I hadn't wasted all that time failing Spanish class. A sharp pain struck me fast as the side of my neck burned in pain. I grabbed my neck quickly and spun around. The dark form tackled me to the ground. He began yelling in the unknown language in rage as I tried fighting him off. He was much stronger than me. I could barely resist. For some reason during the struggle, even though I didn't understand him, he kept repeating the same words. Fukushu and Raku were the only two I could easily make out and his rants continued. As I felt myself being more and more overpowered, a dizziness began to set in as I slowly backed out. The last thing I remember is his face. An angry face of an Asian man. Red flickers from the flames lit him up almost as if... I was in hell. I remember the dream I had vividly. I don't usually remember dreams at all, but this one will be with me forever. The empty old train in the station was directly in front of me. I looked down at my feet to notice it was off the ground. A quick look above me saw a rusty chain hanging from the wall. I felt my neck where the man had hurt me. Chains. The chain was around my neck and I was hanging. No pain, no death. I was not alone. I looked around at dozens upon dozens more people, all in the same predicament. Some were crying. I could almost hear the teardrops hit the ground as the silence was deafening. A growling was heard from the darkness down in the train tunnel. No one moved. They continued their sobs. Two large blue lights appeared in the black tunnel. They sat for several seconds. They moved closer. A misty form began to appear, faster than I could keep up with. It jolted into the room toward a grouping of people. It was large, bigger than the train itself. It flew, defying gravity with its blue, almost silky-looking vapor. Its tail whipped back and forth as I witnessed its claw grab a victim's head. The person's head completely disappeared in its grasp. A white substance began emitting from almost every pore of this victim. The demon began consuming it through its large elephant-like trunk. I recognized it. It was the statue from the hidden room. I watched for a seemingly endless amount of time as it went from person to person, darting back and forth randomly, feeding. It was my turn. Its face was larger than ever as it stared at me. It grasped my head as I began to feel myself once again pass out. I awoke in a dark room. A soft red hue lit the bottom part of the walls. I was flat on my back. I lifted my head up to see the smoldering flames. It was the same fire as before. Confusion set in as I lifted my hand. I was holding a small branch with berries growing from it. I was reminded of the ritual I had witnessed earlier. My confusion turned to fright as I realized who was laying next to me. I jumped to my feet to see a young Asian man peacefully laying on his back as well, a dagger deep into his chest. 
The police were notified and an investigation was done. I told them the whole story top to bottom, except for the dream. You are officially the first to hear that, as I kept it to myself for so long. The detectives were able to identify the man who attacked me. He was the child of a Japanese worker who had died in the accident all those decades ago. They thought his attack on me may have been revenge for his father, or possibly the same psychosis everyone in town was experiencing. My conclusions fall down a different path. Do you remember the words he yelled to me? Fukushu and Raku. They were also inscribed on that little shrine he had. Fukushu means revenge. Raku? That's a different meaning. Raku is an ancient Japanese demon who is benevolent in nature and devours nightmares when you call on it. I believe the old folklore was incorrect, and so did this young man. It wasn't after our nightmares. It was after our dreams. And that's exactly what it got. <laughs>